don't expect you know things to be perfect whatever you whatever you're planning on doing right doesn't matter how hard you prepare shit's still going to go wrong but what you need to understand is that put the blinders on of course right do you whatever it is that you feel and you just know that the work is going to teach you the work right so it is okay that you don't know how to repair motorcycles right now it's okay that you just quite don't know what all of these lines do and these sales are called, right? It's okay that you don't, whatever it is that you're trying to do, that you don't know everything about it yet. What I would say is by doing it, by physically doing it and not just talking about doing it, but by actually doing it imperfectly, so be it, right? But it's that work that's gonna teach you the work. That's how you actually gain mastery in anything, including life, like including anything that you do. You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. That was my guest, Josh Corpel, talking about what he learned during an incredible experience that he's going to tell you about today. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm Eric Rogel and this is Warriors, Lovers, Kings and Heroes. And I want to tell you why I'm excited for today's episode. See, I met Josh recently at some event that we were both part of and we hit it off right away. Because like me, he's got a pretty wide and varied background. He's also traveled all over the world, but his experiences are really, really unique. Unlike anything I've heard from anyone that I've met. And uh, that's why I really wanted to get him on the show here today. So to give you an idea of his background, Josh is a tall ship captain, meaning he sails those beautiful like 60 plus foot schooners that you've seen with the tall masts, huge sails. He's a captain of those. He's also a photographer, a documentarian. He does video editing, design. Uh, He's a former engineer, and he's also now a software company founder. And he's the host of Fire Builders Live. That's a podcast that he does six days a week live, week in and week out. And that is just an incredible commitment. And on that show, on Fire Builders Live, which guys I highly recommend because I also had the honor of guesting on it. But Josh has got experts from all different areas who take big goals and break them down into small steps. So you get an actionable first step and some strategies that you can focus on to get to your goals. It's great stuff. Again, you'll find it at firebuilderslive.com. But getting back to Josh and his story. So it was a story that he told me one day, we were just on a zoom call together, just bullshitting about stuff that we've done. And, um, he told me this one story and I absolutely wanted him to come on and tell you about it. Uh, it's about a motorcycle trip that he took through Tibet and Northern India in the snow on a shitty motorcycle with his girlfriend on the back. So it is powerful, fun, bold, terrifying. It was an absolutely incredible experience. So I'm not going to say any more about it. We're going to jump in and I'm going to let Josh tell you all about that experience and what he learned by taking that trip. So Josh, you took a couple of motorcycle trips, different ones long-term. You did a, you did a year around the U.S. on a motorcycle and then you did uh, Northern India and Tibet for two months on a motorcycle. What, what First of all, what got you inspired to do that man because that's we're talking about courage boldness sense of adventure all of that rap it's a great trip tell me what got you going all of that stuff uh you know i wanted something that i saw in the movies you know you would watch you would watch films like motorcycle diaries you know che guevara going all around the, the south america you know you watch like like uh what's it called with um those guys like the long way round uh yeah you know they just they what you find is, and I found this out in Tibet and, uh, and India, Northern India, was that there's so many different ways to go and travel the world. There's so many different ways to explore and experience. My personal opinion is that doing it on the back of a motorcycle is the best way because it really does implant you 
into the place that you're exploring. It makes you become a part of it as opposed to just a driving through it in a car or a bus. You know, you smell the smells, you, you see the people, you have breakdowns and you have to flag down trucks and, you know, get shipped off you know, two, three, four miles down the road to try and find a guy that can fix your tire kind of thing. Yeah. Things, so you really do integrate yourself. And because of that, you learn so much more. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of is um, when I was younger, I read the uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah, Robert Piercing. Yeah, man, just like that. Because he said, you're, you're out in the open. You're part of the environment at that point. So I can really feel that. So tell me about this. You're talking about, you know, you got to find a guy to fix the tire. You got to find someone to do whatever. Now, did you have a plan when you did this? Like, did you have places you were going to stay people along the way? Or was this just like, fuck it. I'm getting on the back of the bike. I'm going to go and whatever happens happens. Yeah. It was more like, more like that. The, there was a rough plan. I mean, the general plan was don't die. The it's a good plan. The, yeah. Like <laughs> the, but, but the day to day, it was circumstantial. You know, you like, for instance, we had a rough plan. It was myself and the girl I was dating at the time, this Israeli girl. And uh, she was on the back of the bike. And so we were two up, had these giant bags, our backpacking bags on either side. And it was a single cylinder 350 Royal Enfield, right? So I don't know if anybody listening knows about motorcycles, but two people with two massive bags with a single cylinder 350 cc bike, there's not a lot of power there. Yeah. Let alone when you get up to like 16, 17,000 feet. The air is so thin that you have to take off the air filter and suck air directly into the carb. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so it, it was crazy. But, but when, we, when we made the decision to, to take a right, right, we were headed up into the Himalayas and we decided to take a right at a, at a town called Shimla. And that took us all the way to Tibet. But that was a very, very spontaneous decision. And it was something that where, you know, you just say to yourself, man, fuck it. Like, I'm here. Let's just, let's do this and see what happens. A lot of times, like good things happened. Sometimes bad things happened. You just learn to be resourceful and deal with it. But I'm, I wouldn't have done it any other way. Yeah. So, so what are some of the challenges you had when you were in, when you were in Tibet? Cause you were talking and you were telling me that like, that was a challenging trip. They didn't actually let us into Tibet. Like we couldn't get in. We could ride to the border, yeah. right? And then we had to ride out and we had to get permits to do that. And it was some of the challenges. Okay, well, obviously like the language was a bit of a challenge, especially when you get away from big cities like Delhi and stuff. Uh, but you, one of the things that you learn is that the concept of, like when you're going to ask directions and you're in the middle of nowhere, you can't be like, Hey buddy, like, where's, where's a casa, you know, <laughs> yeah, where's not a gas station Kaza? where you just go in and go, Hey, how do I get? Yeah. No, no. The thing that you have to do is you ride up to somebody that looks like they know what's going on and you just say where you're trying to go. So it's like uh recong payo. And then you just point to a direction, any direction, right. That you think it is. And they'll either nod. Yes. Or they'll shake their head no. But what you find in India, we found out really quick, and we found this out the hard way, is that the nodding is not an up-down motion with your head the same way it is in the States, right? It's this sideways like headcock thing, right? So it looks like they're saying yes and no at the same time, and you had no idea what the hell they were trying to say. So you'd be like, is it the way? And they just do this, they just like cock head thing. And uh and we, it took like 10 people before we figured out that they were all saying, yes, go that direction. And uh, so, the, you know, that kind of stuff, just like the day-to-day -day communication, um, it's all in retrospect, man. It was all part of the adventure. I loved every second of it. Yeah. What were some of the hardest things besides the directions that you, uh, you know, some of the hardest challenges you had, either in, you know, the India trip or the U.S. trip, you know, you talked about breakdowns. Oh, yeah. I also got to think having your girlfriend on the back of the bike, small bike, you know, not that powerful. It's taking you a while to get everywhere. That's got to present a challenge as well. Yeah, no, it was, uh, especially at the beginning, right? I don't care how long you've been riding a motorcycle until you have ridden on a motorcycle with somebody whose life you're responsible for on the back with two massive backpacks through New Delhi traffic, right? you haven't, you haven't done anything yet. Like you do that first and then we'll talk. Cause 
not only do they ride on the left-hand side of the road, which to me like took some getting used to, but the controls on the bikes were flipped, right? So brake and clutch were different oh, hands. Wow. So you had to figure that out because they're British bikes. And uh, there, is no, there is no order. Like, like there is no law. Um, you, you fight to survive on the street. And it's just insanity. I was scared shitless the first time. I had to like pull out into traffic and just try and survive. Um, so, but once you get used to that, I would say, honestly, man, the biggest challenge that I had, we were, we had just gotten to the border of Tibet. We made it into this town called Kaza and a month early, normally they have really bad snowstorms around like October, but this happened a month early, it massive snowstorm. It didn't stop snowing for like four or five days. And there were 25 feet of snow up and it caused all of these avalanches and landslides blocking the one road in and out because there's only one road and it's right along the mountainside. So, uh, so we were essentially avalanched into this little Buddhist monastery town for two and a half weeks. Uh, we had no idea if we were going to be able to get out, how we were going to get out. Um, Where'd you stay just, at this point? Like, where were you staying in the, in in the a, monastery? in a small little guest house. Yeah. In a small little guest house where you got served chai tea. And uh, if you wanted to take a hot shower, you had to ask the front desk kind of people, the people that were running it and they would boil up this big pot of water. And that's, and then you would just take these little cups and pour them over yourself. Like, like uh, it was as Spartan as Spartan can be at that point. Um, How was your, uh, your girlfriend during all this? she was awesome. Like she, yeah. you know, there's, it's like the wisdom of no escape. You can't fight it. Like you can't fight the jungle. You just got to kind of go with, along with it. That's and, it. uh, and we learned all kinds of stuff. I learned how to knit from a little old Indian woman that showed me. And, uh, you know, we passed the time in all kinds of different ways, but, but riding out of that scenario, right. Yeah. The 80, 90 kilometers to the next town, that was some of the hardest riding I've ever done. I mean, physically challenging yeah. because because the snow was all melting at that point the indian army had cleared the road so the snow banks are 25 feet neither on either side and the snow's all melting so it turns the what was once dirt road into absolute mud mm. and and you you would you would i mean you would encounter these giant pools that were 30 40 feet long and you had no idea if there were rocks, if there were ruts inside there, and you had to just gun it on the motorcycle, pick one of the two tire ruts and just go as fast as you could, knowing that if you drop the bike, if you let the bike lay down, mm -hmm. that was it, you're fucked. Like you get water in the engine, you're done. So, so you had to go as fast as possible through these. There was no other way to do it. Craziness, man. Yeah, you know, what I'm feeling on this is you're talking about it is, you know, it's one thing if you're doing this on your own or with a buddy, right? But what I'm feeling on it is, you know, you've got your girlfriend with you. There's this sense of like, you know, guardianship, protecting her, showing up as, you know, the, the, the man during all of this. And then that is all going on with the, the snow, the avalanche getting stuck in the guest yeah. house for two and a half weeks. I mean, I'm looking at this like if you, if the relationship can survive that, I mean, I know guys that, they can't, you know, during the quarantine, they're, they're at home with their wives in quarantine and it's making them crazy in their own house. I mean, this had to be, you know, does it add that extra level knowing you were responsible for someone else during this whole trip rather than just like, hey, you know what? I'm doing this on my own. I can stay in the fucking guest house and pour little cups of hot water over myself. And, but now I'm responsible for this other person. How did yep. that add like a layer of what was going on with you in this? Oh man, uh, well, it, it certainly heightened the apprehension of, uh, of everything. But also, it's hard to describe like how mentally taxing it is mm -hmm. to, uh, to stay hyper aware while you're on the bike with somebody on the back. You know, we yeah. would get, we would do like six, seven hours at a time and we'd get to this next house and I would be, I would pass out immediately. I was just so tired. And she would be like, yo, what's up? Like, <laughs> just full of energy like hey let's go and let's get explore and i'm like dude yeah. you have no idea how hard it is to do this uh so there was a very very strong sense of protection 
she also, I mean, she was Israeli. So she like, you know, she'd been through the Israeli army and, you know, she was very self um, resourceful. She was like very self-confident, but, uh, but to give you some perspective of like how crazy it got while we were in Gaza, it was maybe a week in and there were just a few other Israelis that were in this little town with us, right? They had made it, you know, people were trickling in every day, like from, from, from being up in the mountains, being stuck and they hiked their way into this town. And uh, somehow they ended up, the Israelis got together and ended up getting in touch with the Indian embassy, like via radio, who then called the Israeli embassy and was like, hey, we heard that all these people are in Gaza, they're all avalanched in and they're asking for help. So the Indian army sends a helicopter on behalf of Israel to come, they land on a helicopter pad everybody's cheering because we all think that we're going to get out. We're like thinking to ourselves, man, like, what are we going to do with the bike and all that stuff? Ah, fuck it. We'll just leave it. You know, we just need to get out because we have no idea what's going to happen. We tried to get on. They said, nope, Israelis only and uh, stopped everybody else. These few Israelis got on and then they just took off. Huh. And, uh, and so my girlfriend at the time, right, she, she was like, no, screw that. Like, I'm not going with them. Like, I'm sticking with you and we'll, we'll do this together. So it was, uh, you know, there was like a partnership there for sure. And it helped the situation, but, uh, but man, it was in retrospect, it was like, it was intense. It was pretty intense. Yeah. So you're tapping into a lot of warrior there during all of this, right? I mean, you know, you've got the protection thing going, like you said with her, the attention is what I think is really important here too. And for everyone listening, you know, it's the, we always talk about attention's everything. Attention is so important. Pay attention where your attention is, is critical. And I guess you're learning that firsthand on that bike, first coming out of the avalanche, six hour rides with, you know, you're responsible for somebody on the back. I mean, you're locked in that whole time. Yeah, yeah, you are. You are, and you're, and you're like, for those of you that don't ride motorcycles, um, the, the stuff that you have to think about, you have to be really what I call aggressively defensive when you're riding a bike because you just have to navigate under the presumption that no one sees you and that you are responsible for not only what they do, but what you do. And so you're just, you know, spreading your attention across a lot of whole different things, um, especially in India, because, because it's chaos right, and no, uh, laws, right? yeah. no law at all, India rules. But to be honest, man, now that I look back on it, I feel like I'm more at danger in the U S on a motorcycle than I am in India half the time. Tell me why that's interesting. Tell me why you're feeling that way. Because people here drive under the auspices that people are going to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. So they get comfortable and they get complacent and, and, you know, they, they see a stop sign and they're like, Oh, that person will stop, you know, and they just keep going mm -hmm. where in India, you never had that luxury. You always had to wonder, is this person going to stop? What are we going to do in this situation? You had to be hyper aware the entire time. And that, you know, you became an active yeah. player in the driving process. People here, man, they fall asleep at the wheel. Yeah. So, so it's like that chaos creates the attention. Yeah. Right. You, the, that, the knowing that that chaos is going around keeps you sharp, keeps you, your attention forward, keeps you focused on what's going on. Yeah. 100%. Interesting. Yeah. I can feel that. Absolutely, man. So what are some of the things that, that um, you know, besides these challenges and things came up, you know, what, what, anything surprise you while you're on these trips? Like, you know, like hospitality wise, um, you know, people going out of their way to help you guys, you know, forgetting mm. about the helicopter that left you stranded, <laughs> right? Did you come up with any, um, you know, like you, you took away and you went, wow, man, that was just fucking amazing. I would never have expected that. Yeah. 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 We, we had a, a bunch of those. I mean, cause Cause also the bike like would break down every once in a while. It was real hard on the bike. Like in, in, in India, it was really, really hard. And, and so we had a couple of times I learned how to fix just about everything. I like changed clutch plates out in the middle of nowhere. I changed tires six times. Did you know any of this before times. you went on? Like, did you do any training or like, you know, no training, no formal training at all, but uh, you kind of like the work teaches you the work, you know? Mm. And by the way, if you, if you, are thinking about doing this yourself, 
if you get a Royal Enfield over in India, just about every eight-year-old kid knows how to work on these things. So they are, there's like a master mechanics uh, that of any age, but really sure. like you just ask any like 10 year old kid to help you out and they'll like tell you what to do. Anyway. Uh, I hear, I hear Elvis in the background uh, crawling. He agrees with you. He's Elvis loves this story. <laughs> but you know uh, what it is, what I'm getting from this too, and I think is amazing and, and, and really important is, you know, it's the challenge of, you know, the bike breaking down or the tires being changed and all that, that leads to that capability, right? The challenge led to the capability, you having to learn on the fly, right? To make these changes, do the mechanical work on it, whatever it was, forced you to grow in that area, right? Yeah, there's no other option. There's absolutely no other option. I mean, Actually, that's not true. There is another option. You could just give up. You know, you could push the book bike down a mountainside and you could hitchhike into the next town and never do the trip again. But uh, there's no way that I would let that happen. So uh, were there times that I wanted to set that bike on fire? Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but the fact is, is that you 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 become resourceful. You tap into a reservoir that you didn't know that you had. You figure out the problem. You work the problem. It causes you to think like to be solution oriented, mm -hmm. not problem oriented. And, and same deal with all the sailing. Like that's, I learned a lot of that from the world of sailing uh, and tall ship stuff. And I just applied it to the motorcycle stuff and I was able to get through it. Yeah. And that there's something so beautiful there, man, that I love about that. It's like, it's almost like a do or die, right? You just, this is it. You can either curl up in a ball and say, fuck this. I can't do this. Or it teaches you to move forward. So I think that's a, a pretty amazing lesson, you know, and stuff. And you know, you've been that way. Like, there's just something that, you know, cause I'm looking at this going, man, that, you know, what a perfect way for guys to tap into like warrior, lover, king, hero, of going on a trip like this, where it's like, you know, you have to tap into that warrior to get there. You've got your girl on the back. So there's that, you know, having this experience with her, there's the awe and wonder of, of seeing everything that's going out, meeting the new people, um, you know, having to be heroic. This shit is happening. I've got to tap into the hero now and fix this shit. And I think that really kind of moves everything forward. So, um, and we'll get into the sailing thing in a second, but you were talking about this, I mean, had that always been you or did you become more of that from this trip? I became more of it through the trip, but I feel like I've had that inside for quite some time. I mean, I was an exchange student down in, in South America when I was 16 for a year. Mm -hmm. I went and lived with a, with a completely foreign family that did not speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. They just throw you into the school system like you. You have to figure that shit out. And it's not like, it's not like the, the wussy sort of exchange programs that they have today in universities where they're like, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll help you. You go <laughs> learn in Spain and you'll, you'll be putting with Spanish, uh, with English speaking teachers and no one else in your classroom, they'll all be English speaking. So you'll be so comfortable. No, like that's not how you learn. You, you, you they have feel to like they're protecting us, right? Like they're actually, they're doing us a favor. Yeah, I'm protecting not. you from this harm and it's bullshit because it's actually the challenge is what gets you there. They're chopping your knees out from under you. You know, the, you need to go through that that opposition to figure out what you're capable of. And so I learned that when I was 16, you know, essentially. And uh, and I think that I think that a lot of people don't quite understand that, not because they don't have the capability to but they've just never really put themselves or been put in a situation that demands that kind of thing. Right. You know? It's really easy to just, just hang out, stay comfortable, right? not have to do that. But when the time comes, that stuff just gets pulled out of you, like automatically, you don't even think about it. You just do it. Yeah. And especially when, when, you know, there's so much on the line. Right. And I, and I think that's where, you know, we've done a lot of people are in ourselves. I mean, I, I know I've done this too. Comfortable is comfortable, right? Going into the yeah. challenge, getting yourself into the shit is not, but the more you do it, like I'm looking at it now, as you're saying this and I'm feeling like, yeah, man, that, that experience of being the exchange student set you up for this trip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, and, you know, speaking like the trip, like the motorcycle trip in India, I, I remember reading that I read it in a, 
I don't remember. It was like a travel magazine or a motorcycle magazine. Like, and the guy did a report on it. And that always stuck with me. I said to myself, one of these days, I will make that happen. And I'm glad all I had to go off of was that one article and just pieces of the article of what I remember. I didn't do too, too much research. I knew that when I got there, I'd be able to figure it out. And I did. You know, you get there, you start asking around, you find somebody that you can buy a motorcycle from, right? Then once you do that, you start to figure out like where you can go and, and how everything works and the places that you should eat and the places that you shouldn't eat and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. You, you kind of like just go and you figure it out along the way. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell you, man, like, like if more people, you'd be surprised at how much resilience you have in you if you just put yourself in situations, even if ignorance is bliss at this point and you don't quite know what you're getting into, you're not going to, you know, most of it, like, you're probably not going to die. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you'll probably make it. But the point is, is that, is that had I known all of this stuff, had somebody been like, yep, it's going to be real hard. You're probably going to be avalanched in. You're not going to exactly know what to do. You're going to know, have to know how to fix the bike at all of these situations. Would I have second guessed the trip? Yeah, maybe. Would I have thought to myself, do I really want this like that bad? I mean, is it that bad? But I didn't have any of that input. I was just like, fuck it. We're just going to go and we'll figure it out. And I feel like that made the difference. Oh yeah. I can definitely feel that. I mean, I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm like, all right, when I get off, we finish this uh, thing. I'm going to ask Josh, how do I get on a bike and get moving? Cause I want to, that's a trip I definitely want to take. Yeah. So what, what, <laughs> what have you brought back? I mean, just experience wise, not the stories and all of that, but what I mean is how has this affected you like going forward in your life? Like how have you brought some of that into every day? Right. Cause that's, a, that's an important part of these things. It's, you know, look, I, I used to do a lot of vacations where it was like, I want to go lay on the beach for a little while, or I'm just going to walk through town and shop and buy shit. This is more like, I'm going to go have a fucking incredible experience, almost die. Like you're talking about get in these situations but the, the, the value of that is now, how does that enrich and value my life going forward? So what's that been in for you? That I haven't, that I'm now not afraid to, to try new things. You know, that, I, that I, I still feel the fear of being made a fool of, you know, looking ridiculous. Um, I still fear that. And I still have that. It still exists. I just don't really pay attention to it too much anymore because it's like, you know, if you hear somebody say, dude, just go and have faith. Okay. There's something to that. The first time that you do it, right. You just got to have faith. But once you see that in action, you see that things work out. You see that people show up, you see that stuff that you never expected happens and in a positive way, the next time you go to do something that you should have faith in, it's less faith and it's more, I've seen this in practice. I've seen it work. I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore kind of thing. You've experienced it firsthand. So I mean, yeah. yeah, I can feel that, man. And that's why I think it's so valuable guys to get out and do some of these trips and get uncomfortable. That's the other thing, right? You know, that, that it, it's an amazing, exciting trip. And there's, there's this, just that aspect of, I'm going to be somewhat uncomfortable. Some things are going to happen. I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to come out the other side. Right? Yeah, 100%. I like if more people did that, I feel like the world would just be a better place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen, man. I believe that. And you know, you had this happen once before. I mean, I know we're talking about the motorcycle trip was what I really want to talk about, but you just told me about um now, you know, I knew this going in that you were a tall ships captain, right? You've been captaining sailing ships for a long time, but you just told me that you had a massive accident and got stranded in France for several months. So mm. that's another one of these, like, you know, okay, got this crazy, uncomfortable shit hits the fan moment. And how do you handle it? So tell me a little bit about that. Like what happened and, and, and how you came out of it. Well, that, uh, I was a, I was a crew member on a okay. ship called the pride of Baltimore too. And we had, we had sailed across the Atlantic from Baltimore, Maryland, over to Southern England, and then spent- So I'm assuming there's a big, big ship then. This is not yeah, like- Yeah, yeah. You know 150 feet, right? 
like a two-masted schooner, all traditionally rigged. It, it's like, a, it looked like a pirate ship, you know, sort of thing. It's, it's beautiful. Honestly, if you're listening to this and you just Google Pride of Baltimore too, like you'll see it's incredible, right? And everything was done in the traditional fashion. We took meticulous care of this ship. Um, and in the spirit of resilience, like these ships are little microcosms of a city. Everybody has to work together to make the ship function. And you just do things while you're out there in the middle of the ocean that the ship requires. And you don't think about your own safety. You just do it because you know that it needs to get done. And, and so uh, we had spent maybe four months, three, four months racing other tall ships all over Northern Europe, Scandinavia, right? North Sea, Baltic Sea, right? We got, we got some really nice days and we got like our asses handed to us some days, you know, yeah. some really bad storms and stuff. Sure. But either way, we, uh, we were doing a final race from Southern England around the Iberian Peninsula. And the idea was to go into like go into Northern Spain take our passengers, we had six people on board at the time, debark them and then sail around Spain and Portugal and into the Mediterranean. We were so looking forward to that after months and months of getting battered. We were about a day or two into the race in the Bay of Biscay in late, early September, right? So the weather gets pretty rough. And if, for those of you who don't know where that is, if you think about France, it is just the, the entire body of water that's west of France and north of Spain. And we're about 80 miles off the coast of France. And we are close hulled, meaning that it is um, very strenuous on the boat, right? The, the, the wind is coming at us at like a 45 degree angle. And we are almost sailing into the wind slightly, right? So it puts a lot of force on the rigging of the ship. And a piece of the rigging, a piece of like a, a, a weld on the bowsprit, which now you know what a bowsprit is, right? That, like a yeah. piece of wood that goes forward. It failed. It just, the weld just failed and blew up. And uh, when from that the wind, From the pressure of the wind? I mean, that's... From the, uh, from the fact that when the, the boat would smash down into the water and then okay. come back up and then go back down. And those accelerations Got caused huge amounts of force on that bowsprit. And it. when it, when it, when the weld broke, the next time that that bow came up out of the water, there was nothing to stop it from just keeping going. And it, mm -hmm. and it did, and it just cracked right there. And it took four, three or four sails with it. It just, it just blew to port. Right. So, so wait, let's explain what that spread. is though. Cause I, I know what that, the, the bow thing is, but yeah. Tell so me the bow spread, ahead, massive, bow like yeah. massive, like really, really thick, piece of wood that extends out um, past the front of the boat all the way out, right? And the reason that that's there is so that you can put sails and stuff farther out forward of the boat, right? But without that bowsprit, none of those sails, like they're all connected and it just, it just, everything just took off with the wind, wow. right? So like a domino and effect all the way through these sails. All the way through, it ripped everything off. And then what happens, the, a ship is like a seesaw right? Mm -hmm. And when you have, it's like a sideways seesaw. And uh, what happens is when you imagine like in a seesaw, there's like two equal people and then one of them gets off. Well, the fact that the bowsprit carried away is like the essential, the essence of somebody getting off that seesaw. So the boat completely cranked in one direction. Wow. And that caused, that caused the wind to back a bunch of other sails. I'm trying not to use so much nautical terminology here. I'm trying to like describe <laughs> yeah. this, yeah. right? But it, 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 put, it put wind pressure on the wrong side of the sail on the foremast and that just cracked the foremast down right at deck level. And then that hit the main mast, which then cracked down. So, so all in the span of like 45 seconds. How tall seconds. are these masts? So I get an idea of like what we're 150 talking about. 150 feet, maybe. So like, a fucking uh, 150 foot mast comes crashing down onto the deck and then into another one with all the sails, all the rigging, oh, all the yards, man. everything. I mean, if you Google Pride of Baltimore 2 dismasting, you'll see the pictures <laughs> and it's carnage. And you oh, say to man. yourself, how in the world, there were 16 people on board and none of us got hurt, not even a scratch. That's amazing. It, it's insane. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and, uh, and so when this happened, right, we had a you know, you have to, you have to figure out like, what's the state of things now? Are we sinking? Is the boat sinking? No. Okay, good. Uh, 
now let's try and get all this debris up onto the boat as best we can, take stock of what we've got. And once we do that, formulate a plan. And the plan was head into France, drop out of the race, radio those guys, head into France and, uh, and figure out a place to tie up so that we can like figure out what the hell just happened. And, uh, and so that's what we did. A little town called Saint-Nazaire, which is a tiny little faded little seaport village on the Loire River, real close to Nantes, northern France. And they had this, they had this lock system and this big sunflower seed oil factory thing. And we tied up right next to it and lived there for months as we took everything off the boat, rebuilt it, and then built it all back up again. So... Yeah. So you, you had some, I mean, uh, <laughs> my question is saying what challenges did you hit there just seems kind of ridiculous because there's got to be a ton <laughs> of them. I mean, just first of all, you know, making it through the event itself, sailing in and now you're in a foreign country for months rebuilding this boat. And you mentioned something a minute ago about, you know, people trying to get in and steal stuff. You said you had to deal with like almost like pirates coming in trying to take stuff. So what was that about? They're just these thieves like that would roam around where we were staying, like mm -hmm. uh, this boatyard. And they would steal from everybody, not just us. And, uh, and we had a lot of really expensive rigging, like all the ship's rigging and stuff that we'd been working on. And they were just stealing it. They were stealing bikes. So anyway, we, uh, we contacted the cops and they were, like, they were like, look, there's not much that we can do unless you catch one. So we're like, all right. So we set up all of these motion detector lights and, and put a bike there as bait. And as, and as soon as they showed up, the lights popped on, this alarm went off, all of us jumped up out of our bunks and we chased these guys down and got them arrested. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so yeah. So yeah. just like stuff like that, you know, uh, you just got to I think that's funny it. that this has been probably been going on for a long time and you're the first ones that came Everybody. in and said, well, we're going to fucking handle this, right? Like Everybody. somebody do something about this. Yep, exactly. And everybody was so pleased that these guys got busted because they had stolen so much shit from everyone. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it was just quite like, it was just a crazy time. Uh, we won all kinds of awards after that event for the way that we handled the, the whole incident, the whole accident. We won all kinds of seamanship awards and stuff for it. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a big deal. That's wild. Yeah. I want to get into the, um, catching those pirate guys too, or, you know, the thieves or whatever you want to call them. But because what it's really saying to me is. You know, it's it's about making the decision, tapping again into the the warrior part. Going, I'm not taking this shit. And here's this whole group of people who've been like, oh yeah, you know, that just happens. That shit just happens. So there's really okay. So they're just gonna come in here and whatever. And then you guys are in there and like, no, fuck no. I'm not allowing this. This is not going to stand. And then like, boom, done. Yep. Taken yep. care of. And it just really illustrates the the effect of like not taking shit like that and going, uh-uh, this is not how I'm going to live. Yeah. Especially a bunch of like, you know, underfed, underpaid, tired sailors with knives and spikes uh, like on our fucking belts and stuff. Like you don't want to piss those people off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How were the people of um, now? I'm going to, I'm going to say this in general, not, I was going to ask in France while you guys were kind of marooned there. Um, but also Tibet and, and, and comparing contrasting to how it was when you did the motorcycle trip around the U S did you find that generally, cause I want to get into like, you know, that lover side, the, you know, the, the, that compassion, um, the, the kindness part, the awe, the wonder, the appreciate all those things. I mean, did you find that it was generally the case when you were doing these travels with the people that you met, that they were just like willing to help, wanting to help uh, yeah. in, in wonder about what it was that you were doing? Like, tell me about that a bit. The, in the major cities, places like New Delhi, um, not so much. Everybody there just saw you as a walking dollar sign. They just wanted to figure out how they could get money from you. But once you got out of the cities, everybody was helpful, right? I mean, people would bend over backwards to help you. There were plenty of times where we were stuck, we were screwed, and somebody showed up miraculously and was like, absolutely, man, I'll, I'll totally help you. And so- Not just even a stranger, you're a foreign stranger. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, you know, I think about that when people request my help, right? Like pay that stuff forward because you can only do so much in the moment when they help you and you, you can say thank you and you try to pay them and they, you know, they don't accept the money. Well, the next best thing that you can do is tell them, look, there will be somewhere that I'm going to, I'm going to show somebody else that needs help, like the same appreciation that you did. And so just know that that's going to happen. That's what they want to hear. So yeah. So in, in India, for sure, um, France, for sure, lots of lots of so many people came to help us there. Uh, and then I couch surfed the US trip um, down, you know, from New York, and then all through the eastern side of the United States, working my way all the way down to where I am now in Key West. I had no idea what to expect with the whole couch surfing thing. I'd never done it before. People couldn't have been better. It was really? the, it was the highlight of the trip. Like, and these are just random people you met along the way, or had you planned couches before you went on your trip? Or this was just like, hey, you know before. what? I'm tired of riding. I'm just gonna go find somebody. Slightly before, so like maybe a day or two beforehand, right? You just reach out. I was doing this all on the couch surfing website, and you would reach out to people, and they would just extend their homes to you and take you in and help you and feed you, make you dinner, have conversations. Uh, I could have stayed in like hotels and stuff the entire way or camped the entire way, but what really made the trip were the people 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that connection, man, I'm just feeling that as you're saying it. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing. And, and if you're saying there's a couch surfing website, that means that these are people who just want to connect with other people. Like just oh, yeah. want to meet new people. And, and I'm just really feeling the, the just the beauty in that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, a lot of them, a lot of them used to be travelers themselves and they can't do it anymore. So what the next best thing is to bring the world to them. Yeah. And like you said, paying it forward, right? This yep. is what I'm going to do. People let me couch surf and now I'm going to, you know, do the next now that I can't travel. That's just, yeah. Yeah. Feeling that, you know, it's, it's especially now, like in, in some of these times where we hear all the negative stuff to hear that there are, you know, people really are willing to open their hearts, open their homes make that connection with people, have the type of adventure that you've had and, and really just kind of um, embrace all of that, embrace each other as, you know, as brothers, as sisters, as family all around. I mean, just, I, I love hearing that. It's, it's, um, it's encouraging to hear. Yeah. You learn, you know, you learn that. And I learned this even from the, the days in South America and Chile, like you learn that everybody's the same. It doesn't matter where you come from right? There might be different ways of doing the same thing, but they all, everybody has the same concerns. They want the best for themselves. They want the best for their family, right? There's really no right and wrong concepts. Everybody feels like they're doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, that goes across everything uh, um, from what they do, their jobs, to their viewpoints on religion, to, uh, to, to everything. I mean, it's just, if there's one thing that you can do to connect with people, foreign people, especially if you even don't even speak the language, is is talk about family. Is talk about you know talk about uh, um, wanting the best for others. You know there are just these certain threads of human experience that everyone shares, and uh, and so you get that you get that in places like India. You get that in places like couch surfing in Columbus, Ohio. You know it doesn't matter. Beautiful, man. I love that because we're all one, man. When it, when it comes down to it, we're just, you know, we're all one now. Yeah. So now you've got this and I, and I want to, as we're wrapping this up, uh, you got the, your show that you do called fire builders. Yep. Right. Which is real briefly. Tell us what fire builders is, who, who you're talking to, what stories are coming on. Well, so myself and the rooster that you keep on hearing named Elvis, <laughs> Elvis uh, co-host who is the co-host now. Um, <laughs> So what I do is I, I, I broadcast live on Facebook six days a week. So I have six different guests every week and we just take big concepts and we break them down into like the one singular thing to focus on mm -hmm. to move forward with that. So I've had people on like MIT professors, VH1 hosts, professional mermaids. Uh, wow. I had the mayor of Key West on the other day. I've got, you know, just, just folks that are really interesting. They're doing great stuff with their lives and they're 
they're, they're folks that you can learn from. And they are telling you, look, if you just cut away all the bullshit and focus on this one thing, that's going to get you somewhere. And that's what we talk about on the show. Yeah. See, I love that. I know you invited me to come on. So like, I'm honored to, to come on and do it. I'm excited about it. But yeah. what I really got from this, when you and I, we know we talked about me coming on and what the show was, I was like, wait, hold on a second. Back up. This is live Monday through Saturday, every Monday through Saturday at noon, period. End of discussion. That is a massive commitment. And you know, commitment's one of the sacred seven core values that we talk about. It's an important one because we, you know, we don't keep commitments a lot. I mean, I say we, and I know I'm talking about me, like this is one of my experiences was how am I keeping my commitments to myself and others? And this was a commitment to yourself. I mean, what made you say, I mean, I know from experience how tough it is just to do one show a week, but you're doing six at a specific time and they're live all those days. Yeah. What, what brought you to that decision and when, how long have you kept this commitment? How long has this been going on now? I just did uh, 148 today. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I've been doing yeah. it. Yep. So I've been doing it. Uh, I took a, a hiatus, a couple of months hiatus. I did a hundred straight episodes starting in April and I did those all the way through like the whole lockdown thing in Key West and then took a couple of months off, kind of regrouped and figured out what I could improve in the show. And now um, now I did, yeah, 148 today with uh, the guy that created onlinejobs.ph. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever hired any uh, Filipino VAs and employees. VAs, yeah, sure. But that's like the huge site for that. So all kinds of really interesting people. And you're right, it is the commitment. For me, if you haven't, if you haven't been able to tell already, like when I do something, I go 150% in, right? And I knew that I was going to be a real shit host <laughs> at the very beginning. Like I had no, I'd never done that before. Sure. Never hosted. I didn't know what the thing, you know, what the challenges were going to be. And, uh, and just like when I, when I learned Spanish by being thrown into the school system, I threw myself into the idea of doing this six days a week, doing it live so that there was no editing. I didn't have to worry about that. It caused me to focus. Right. And, uh, and then to force myself to come up with the processes both before and after the show. I mean, cause you know, the majority of the work is like mm -hmm. what happens yeah. before the show, what happens after the show. Uh, so I had to come up, I did this all myself. Like, like it's just maybe within the last two and a half weeks, have I had help writing the introductions? Everything else has been 100% me and I had to come up with processes. I had to come up with workarounds. I had to come up with ways to handle the workload. Just like you said, it's like the, that action creates clarity. It creates clarity for what you need to build next. And that's, that's what I did. So now, yeah, now I feel way more comfortable going live and talking with people. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's funny when you said that, that commitment, you know, it, it does drive the action and it's like, you got to get it done. So you find the way. You know, and, and it's also being uncomfortable, like we just talked about at the beginning of, of you know, our, our conversation. It's that uncomfortableness is what really creates the beauty that ends up coming out. I mean, yep. you know, like I said, I know doing a show like that six days a week, that's uncomfortable. And it's yeah. a commitment and you got to lock down on it. So, yeah, man, I, I love that. So one last thing with you, Josh. I mean, um, I know we talked about a lot, but if there was one, like one lesson you could leave the guys with that you've learned that you've taken with you, or you want them to know if they're planning their own adventures or, or afraid to plan their own adventures, kind of feeling into that fear that they've got to tap into courage to get past would be the one, the one thing you would let uh, everyone know. Yep. I would say something that has stuck with me forever, ever since I heard it the first time, uh, don't expect, you know, things to be perfect. Whenever you, whatever you planning on doing, right? doesn't matter how hard you prepare, shit's still going to go wrong. But what you need to understand is that, is that put the blinders on, of course, right? Do you, whatever it is that you feel, and you just know that the work is going to teach you the work, right? So it is okay that you don't know how to repair motorcycles right now. It's okay that you just quite don't know what all of these lines do and these sales are called, right? It's okay that you don't, whatever it is that you're trying to do, that you don't know everything about it yet. 
what I would say is by doing it, by physically doing it, and not just talking about doing it, but by actually doing it imperfectly, so be it, right? But it's that work that's going to teach you the work. That's how you actually gain mastery in anything, including life, like including anything that you do. Uh, and if you want to become more resourceful, the work's going to teach you the work. Put yourself into situations where you need to, you need to be resourceful. Um, that's what I would say is just to know that everything else, everything else just falls into place. But that's the one thing I would say. The work is going to teach you the work, man. I absolutely love that because it is so, so important to have these challenges in our lives. I say that a lot. It is so important to have challenges in our lives and then to look at the value and the lessons we gain by going up against these things, by facing them head on with courage, with boldness, and, and also with love. To love and appreciate our challenges and failures because of what they teach us about ourselves. Work is going to teach you the work. Because failing and taking the lessons and the wisdom from those failures, by getting out of our comfort zones and getting uncomfortable enough to have experiences like the one Josh just talked about, that's what enriches our lives and lets us grow. And it lets us grow bigger and it lets us grow faster. And also, here's this. It teaches us to have enough trust in that growth because we've experienced it ourselves that it allows the people in our lives to face their challenges as well. For us to allow them to face their own challenges, as painful as that is, for us to do that, not want to rescue them from it or protect them from it, shield them from it, they also need to fail. They also need to get uncomfortable so that they can take their lessons. Now, Josh has got a ton of other stories like this, so I'm definitely going to have him back, have him tell some more of those, um, some of the ones he touched on a little bit today, and then some others. But in the meantime, head over to firebuilderslive.com and listen in to some of his interviews. They're really compelling. He's got some great guests, some great strategies, great tips. Okay, guys, that wraps this episode. So I want to thank Josh Corpel for joining us today, for being real, being honest, and for telling us that incredible story of his journey. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next time, guys. Take care. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.